So Lisa, as I normally do, I was wasting my life away looking at Instagram and I was trying to find something that was directly related to Lady Gaga's most recent role um, in a movie in particular. And instead of finding exactly what I was looking for, I found something else that's a little bit dated, but I think it's something that we should at least bat around a little bit. And it's where Lady Gaga received the Yolanda Denise King Higher Ground Award from the King Center and the King family. And this was a special recognition for co-founding the Born This Way Foundation, other campaigns on mental health, resources for marginalized groups. We, we know that she's done a lot. Um, and even more so during the pandemic, she raised about $35 million for COVID aid. And I had no idea this award existed, but I think her acceptance speech, which was a little over seven minutes, was incredible. And it was talking about unlearning things that we really need to take stock of. And so I thought it was really profound. I wish everyone could just listen to it and reflect on themselves, but it was really powerful, Lisa. I think we should all listen to it. Yeah. And I did watch it and I thought that she had a lot of humility, right? And the piece that really resonated with me was that unlearning, that it is a process and it is an active process. And, you know, Mm. I think about my own journey and how the need is there to constantly question your assumptions because things that you have learned either explicitly or implicitly as a white person aren't really the capital T truth. And so I really like Mm. the way that she framed that. I do think it's a really um, special uh, tool that we could use, Mm. particularly given how famous she is and how many fans she has. I think it could be powerful. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about Lady Gaga. Let's talk about this unlearning piece. I think we need to sit down and take some notes from Lady Gaga. So let's talk about it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Whether you're competing in a triathlon or swimming to challenge yourself, Orca has fit-for-purpose swimwear designed to meet your needs. Innovation has always been part of Orca's DNA, and when it came to the development of their new triathlon wetsuits, a wide range of skill levels and different types of triathletes were taken into account. Whether you're looking for maximum flexibility, maximum buoyancy, or somewhere in between, Orca wetsuits are designed to help you achieve better performance in the water. It is performance made simple. For 15% off all items on orca.com, use the code LiveFeisty15. Whether you run, ride, hike, or swim, you understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build endurance, boost energy, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. 
you'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real-time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash feisty and use the code feisty for 20% off. That's insidetracker.com forward slash feisty. So Lisa, when I just happened to fall into this particular uh, video post from Lady Gaga, I was like, whoa, this is like so instructional. And of course, it's not as if the video was like, you know, a tree falling in a silent forest here. We know that anything that Lady Gaga does is pretty well known worldwide. I mean, she has well over, what, 52 million followers on Instagram. So obviously anything she does or posts, people are following pretty closely. And as I listened to this acceptance speech video, what I thought was really profound was that two things popped out for me. She constantly named her privilege or privileges, plural. And she also constantly named everything that she thought she knew that she had to unlearn. And that takes a whole lot of cultural humility. We talk about that a lot around having that humility of saying, whoa, wait a minute. What I thought I knew is not exactly what I what's true and what's that capital T truth, as you mentioned before. So it was just really telling to me. And I think she kind of gave a, you know, a clinic on how to do this well without being perfect. Right. Because clearly it wasn't perfect. But she I mean, that was a strong delivery on that video. It was. And she also, yeah, she acknowledged the mistakes that she had made, right? That even as much as she thought she was an ally, um, you know, earlier in her life, um, she has since reflected on and realized that perhaps that wasn't actually the case. And I think um, there are so many of us, particularly white people, or perhaps men also in terms of women and Um, straight people in terms of the LGBT community who think that they are an ally. And we've talked about allyship before and how that's not a Mm. lady to give yourself, right? And that you need to earn it. Um, But there's still, I think, this barrier that exists around what it really means to understand or have empathy for the the continued experience of oppression, you know, And I think the only way that you can really do that is to actively engage in this unlearning process, which is really hard, isn't it? Like unlearning something. We're never taught that. We're taught learning, right? And we talk about that all the time, but we never talk about, well, now you need to unlearn that. So, oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, and you know that I can give you so... So many examples of stuff that I learned, even as a triathlete, that I had to go back and unlearn and relearn something new. Like even when I was an early runner and it was like, hello, you need to find a breathing pattern. And, you know, what does it mean as far as finding a breathing pattern when you're running or unlearning, especially for those of us who learned how to swim as an adult? um, My training partner and I used to jokingly say, oh, well, the goal was to 
Hold your breath until you get all the way down to the end of that 25 meter pool and see what happens. That's what we thought swimming was, right? Unlearning that, oh, no, you need a breathing pattern for swimming or unlearning fear of water versus respect of water. For example, there's just so many things that I've had to unlearn and relearn, even as an endurance sport, athlete, junkie, fan, all of that. And so, you know, I think it's interesting how much humility it takes to admit that either what you thought you knew is either incorrect or incomplete when it comes to that, right? So like, you know, going back to one of my favorite books I've mentioned on this podcast before, um, Lies My Teacher Told Me uh, by James Nowen, where he, by James Lowen, excuse me, um, that talks about filling in some of the gaps of the history that either we learned incorrectly in high school or there simply was not enough time or uh, content in history books to give us the whole the whole story, or at least more of the story rather. And that book was mind blowing for me as what, maybe a sophomore in college, because I was so angry that I had to unlearn a few things, you know, that I had to unlearn that, oh, that wasn't in the movies, that was real. Or yes, I know someone told you that people wanted to be enslaved, but actually no, they did not want to be enslaved. There were so many things I had to unlearn, even as a black person about my own people and communities that it, it was frustrating to me as someone learning about my experiences. And I'm imagining what that means for someone who has been empowered their entire lives. Right. And now yeah. they've been faced yeah. with, mm, you got your power in, in sketchy circumstances. It was stolen from people, taken from people, strong arms from people. And what does that mean for how you live your day-to-day life right now? Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about this um, feeling of, being threatened and this loss of power mm. or status is understood as um, mm. having something taken from you that is inherently yours, right? Because that's what you've learned yes. that it belongs to you. And we've, you know, we've talked about that a little bit, but not necessarily using this kind of term unlearning. And I think it's a painful process. And that is perhaps one of the many reasons why white people in particular don't necessarily actively engage in the unlearning process. But I really like the way you compared that to endurance sport because I'm thinking about swimming also, you know, and I used to think it was like straight arm swimming, right? Like, you know, like it's a yes, right? I think a lot of yes. people with that and that's what I, I learned. And I learned it only because I never had like proper swim lessons until I was an adult. And so then you're like, oh, so it's way easier if I just change my form. And I think there's a lot to learn from that um, in terms of, you know, race and racism and sexism and homophobia in that actually, you know, things might initially be more challenging as you're learning the new skill and unlearning the old one, but in the long run, you might really benefit from it, right? Because things might actually ease up. Yes, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you know, it's so I think the the question that we might need to try to answer here somewhat is, okay, so what's the process of unlearning? You know, what's the and we touched on a little bit of the beginning of that here, but what's the actual process of unlearning things that we don't even know are incorrect yet until we get further into it, right? So I think, you know, maybe some of the things we've already mentioned when it comes to unlearning is that 
number one, the mindset of just being open to the fact that some things that you may have learned since childhood may have been incorrect or incomplete, right? Um, I posted yesterday, in fact, I'm working on another project, but I posted on my Facebook page, I asked the question, you know, what do you wish folks had told you about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a kid or as a youth or as your parents, you know, whomever may have told you. And there were so many good answers. I think like 25 people responded talking about things like, um, I don't see color is inappropriate or um, diversity not being the same thing as inclusion and equity. Some people mentioned, for example, that whiteness is not the norm. That was one thing people wish they knew was that whiteness was not the norm or maleness was not the norm. And so just admitting that, oh, this is going to require an entire mindset shift and then kind of unbraiding or unraveling what you thought you knew to be true as not true. And I think what was really profound, one of our listeners actually responded to that thread um, that said that she was raised in a multiracial family. There were adoptions and so forth in her family. And she thought she understood colorism until she became an adult, right? And so I think we're going to constantly be in this place where we need to stay open to unlearning, even as we discover more, as we grow, as we become aware of things. I think it does require, as cliche as it sounds, open-mindedness on a lot of things. Right. Yeah. And just, and even the energy, the motivation to explore, right? Like, you know, often Mm -hmm. we will explore our family history, right? We look back through genealogy websites and various things to try to understand where we came from and how we, you know, ended up where we are in both kind of, you know, geographic location, but also, you know, in other circumstances. And I think that that is perhaps a similar process um, of unlearning, right? Because oftentimes in that process, you end up finding out things about your um, ancestors that you never knew, whether that was, you know, they were royalty or they were slave um, holders or they were politicians or whatever, right? And you, and that can often then change the way you look at things in the current or perhaps explain something because you now have some context that you didn't have before because whatever the, maybe the information was forgotten or no one ever thought to tell you. And Mm, so mm -hmm. I think that same thing or experience would actually be really useful. And and Mm -hmm. now I'm like, Oh, is there a website, (laughs) right? Where, you know, the same way that you can track your genealogy and go backwards. Is there Mm. one place versus a diverse set of websites where there's a way to, Mm. track your family backwards but in relation to systems of oppression you know Mm. you Mm -hmm. start with thinking about your family and all the stories that you were told about your family because that can often form the basis of your identity and then understand that a little bit more and then from there you kind of branch out and start thinking about okay well if I was told x about my family and that's not right you know what else has been covered Mm -hmm. up or erased kind of around that same issue. Yes, 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 absolutely. Well, I I do know that there's two places specifically for African-Americans, what we call the Blacksonian here in D.C., the the National um, African-American History Museum here, as well as the International African-American Museum uh, down in uh, South Carolina. Both of those help with genealogy, but again, 
you know, Lisa, I think it's interesting that you brought that up because again, depending on your background, it's how far can you go back exactly? You know, for, for me, I can go back, you know, five or six generations, but once I get to the sixth generation, it doesn't give names like Lisa and Shauna, it gives chattel, you know, it it just gives numbers like an inventory in a store, if you will, because that's what we were, right? And so even how far can you go in relation to that group? um, I thought it was really interesting. My good friend, um, Tara, which I'm sure she wouldn't mind me mentioning her here, she identifies as a white woman. And when I was sharing with her some of my genealogical history around um, my ancestors being brought to Point Comfort, which is such an ironic name um, in Virginia. Yeah, I know. It's like, um, no, that was not comfortable mm-hmm. at all. Yep. Um, but, um, you know, when I brought that up to her, you know, she was saying how, how ironic is that? Because no one talks about uh, the slaveholders that were there to receive the enslaved people. And what does that mean as far as the intersecting oppressions of genealogy and history? Who knows if, God forbid, if Tara's uh, um, family members were slaveholders or had a slave auction block or anything in regards to that, their history may not have recanted them as slave owners. Their history may have recounted them as entrepreneurs or some other language that doesn't include oppressive language and structures, right? And so querying those questions to ask, is that the whole truth? Because yes, they were entrepreneurs, but in the worst business in the world in global history, right? So what does that mean? Mm. Yeah, well, and even there is an unlearning for me, right? Thinking about genealogy, and I hadn't necessarily consciously thought about what you said, and now you've brought it to my consciousness in that they're based on your identities, at least in the United States, you're, you're not going to be able to go back, right? You're going to lose track of who those um, family yeah. members are because of slavery. And so yes. that is something yes. a, a white European that I won't have. I mean, there might be a lack of documentation. I don't know, but it's not going to be because my ancestors were given a number and their name was erased and their identity was erased, right? Right, so, right, you know, right. So, exactly. And when we, when we talk about genealogy, both either commercials or television shows or anything like that, that's not often mentioned. Mm-mm, not at all. Not at yeah. all. It, yeah, it's not often mentioned. And, you know, even when it comes to slaveholders' names being given to the enslaved, for example. So yes, I married into the gold family, but the gold family or golds as far as African-Americans or people of African descent were actually um, connected in certain ways to Jewish communities who had last names like Goldberg, Goldstein. So where's the rest of that history? I don't have the full story on that, obviously, but those are questions that we need to ask is tell me the full story because we can only go so far. Um, Even with my grandmother, who I talk about often on this podcast that turns 97 in August, her maiden name is actually a, was not an African-American name. It was the name of white slave owners. So again, even as we currently live as free African-Americans and relatively empowered based on our history, we still carry these white ass names, Lisa. We're carrying them every day and may not even think about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And that's, so there's this unlearning that has to happen across 
all identity groups, right? And in some cases, it's smaller things. And in other cases, it's much larger things. But I'm thinking about this Mm. quote that I saw on Twitter um, from a professor uh, who says, we don't talk enough about how integration historically meant placing black and brown people in white supremacist environments. And so when we think about what we have learned around desegregation, particularly thinking about school integration, the kind of general message in the classroom is that that was a really good thing, right? And I'm certainly not saying that Brown versus the Board of Education, which was the massive Supreme Court case that kind of um, said that separate is inherently unequal. I'm not saying that that was a bad thing, but this other way of looking at it is that schools or education or sports systems or workplaces were and are systems that are woven with whiteness, right? So then you're putting a disenfranchised and an oppressed person in that environment and you're not changing the system. So therefore, the folks who don't succeed in those white environments are then blamed. And so that's an unlearning, right? right? To really think about it um, differently, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, (laughs) thank you for even bringing that up because, you know, Maybe we're doing unlearning in the midst of unlearning here, Lisa, because the first unlearning that I'm hearing from what you're bringing up is that a lot of people think Brown versus Board of Education was a thousand years ago. And it's so historical that all you're going to see is the black and white pictures, right? Yeah, relatively. It was a while ago. But my mother, who is not yet 70, was her first high school class to integrate my high school where I graduated from. And she is still living and kicking and she's great. She's fantastic. This is in our lived experience. And so um, I graduated from Alta Vista High School down in Southern Virginia um, in 1995. My mother, as a senior, was bused from Campbell County High School, which was in Rustburg, Virginia, and was all Black at the time. When she became a senior, she started to be bused to what would become my high school. And my high school was the all-white high school at the time. And you're hitting the nail on the head in regards to much of her experience, where, yes, integration, now that we had an opportunity you know, to look back and kind of think through the overarching process, okay, yes, but those first few classes of African-Americans and other people of color that integrated those white systems were going through hell. So my mother, who had, you know, been a musician and had uh, been on the dance team and the, you know, majorette and all those other things at her black high school now was no longer welcome to do that at this new high school that was supposed to be so great for everybody as we integrate. Right. And so not to say it didn't transition into greatness and me as a high schooler, I had a really good experience at that high school, but that's 30 years later, almost 40 years later. So of course, my parents would hope that my experience would be better than theirs. But what about their experience where, you know, you spent three or four years doing a sport and then you, you're you not welcome to do that anymore? Your senior year, one of the years that are supposed to be the most pleasant and the most memorable for you and your family. That's just nasty. I mean, and so mm-hmm. you're right. Again, let's tell the fuller story. And I've yet to see anything. There may be something out there. A viewer can let us know. I've yet to see anything written by those first few classes that experienced integration across the country and what their day-to-day experience was, you know, in addition to the lack of safety, the, 
you know, the precariousness of trying to be a part of a system that was not created for you. All of that was very real for my mother. Yeah. And so in 2024, it will be the 70th anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education. And you're mm-hmm. making me think of Jackie Robinson. And we just passed yes. the 75th anniversary of his uh, quote unquote debut in baseball. Yes. Right. And there's been a lot of, um, commentary from white famous people about how fantastic it was that he broke the color line you know and then there was another comment um I think it was a a white conservative politician who tweeted something related to how great it was that Jackie Robertson did this right and then the response to the tweet was but you're banning teachers from teaching the history about why that happened right about why exactly um this big day where baseball kind of like baseball was like the final frontier for integration that's right that's uh, right allowing african-americans to play and so then you're but you're preventing kids from learning about the history prior to that point right so you're like contradict like it's you're celebrating this man but then you're covering up the history that kept him out of baseball prior um of course and and, yeah and let's let's go even more critically into that into something that's happened more recently lisa so we know that as of what the end of 2020 the mlb finally added the negro leagues records in so that we could really see where were the records who beat who we could really go back as a statistician and look at the numbers you know we're data people and so the fact that it took until 2020 to even do that tells us there's a lot of the story that was purposely excluded and this right. only right. happened in 2020 i would imagine it would take at least another decade just to look at the impact of the stats over that period of time if you're looking equitably at the MLB stats and the Negro League stats. So, you know, what story are we telling exactly? And unlearning that the Mm -hmm. MLB stats did not include very significant athletes in the United States. That's an unlearning in and of itself. And so it sucks. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciate um, you know, I read pieces of books, Lisa. I don't think I ever read a book cover to cover. I read pieces of it and then go back. Um, but I'm reading this wonderful book called Beyond Diversity. And they have a couple of uh, chapters that talk specifically about storytelling. And one of the great quotes that I've read already, the quote says, diversity should just be called reality. Your books, your TV shows, your movies, your articles, your curricula need to reflect reality, right? Um, And that quote was by Tanana Reed Du, who's an author and American Book Award winner. And it reminds me of endurance sport more broadly. It reminds me of everything that I enjoy watching. Uh, Lisa, you and I have talked about watching Bridgerton on uh, Netflix in particular and how Uh, Shonda Rhimes specifically talked about this as well when she was casting that, no, I didn't cast Queen Charlotte as a Black woman to ruffle your feathers. I cast her as a descendant of Ethiopia because that's what our history tells us, right? And so just being accurate in and of itself can tell the fuller story, right? And so that took a process of unlearning that we haven't been told the full story in most things most things. And that's, I think what can be the frustration is that who's been keeping the full story from us or a fuller story from us. Mm -hmm. Well, we know the, what, what do we say? The, the hero tells the story. Well, yeah, unfortunately that's what happens. And so now it's time for 
different heroes to tell fuller stories, in my opinion, but that's part of that unlearning process. Yeah, and the unlearning just requires this curiosity, right? It, it, it requires particularly folks in power, so white people, men, able-bodied folks, straight people, to yes. question what they know. Yes. Um, and so that creates instability in your life um, because what you thought you knew to be true and right may not be. And I, you know, I think that just it's it's more than just open mind, right? You actually, it's like that active piece that we talked about. You have to be curious and you have to be skeptical about what you've been taught. If what you've been taught and heard is like monoracial or kind of monogender, right? Like if you're not hearing about um, a broad and diverse group of people who have contributed to a profession or an industry, then there's a reason for that, right? And mm. that's where I think you have to start picking at the scab. Um, and I think because it can be yes. want to pick at the scab, right? So. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, what you're making me think of in regards to that pain, I know we're running out of time, but I really wanted to highlight how the pain too can come from the notion that the majority of what we learned has come from people that we simply love and adore, right? So family members, friends, some of your favorite teachers in elementary, middle school, high school that told you or taught you either an inaccurate story, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. um, And because of those learnings, that is why we are where we are in regards to not knowing certain things. So for example, Nicole Hannah-Jones talked about this specifically with the 1619 Project. As a kid, she always wondered why didn't they go back to 1619? Why are we always starting at a certain point, but never? We're starting a civil rights movement. So nothing black happened until Martin Luther King showed up. Hell no, that, that's not the full story. And so she talks about that specifically. It's tough to say, I adored Lisa, my history teacher in high school, but she only gave me 25% of what I need to know. And I still adore her, right? right? Right. That's hard to do. And I have teachers that I look back on where I'm like, I just, I just worship the ground they walk on, but they only gave me part of the story. And it took me college, graduate school, and on my own to figure out more pieces of the story. And frankly, Lisa, that may be the key there is that we will forever be in a process of unlearning until our last breath, because we're always going to be either adding to the story or unlearning and replacing that inaccurate story with more accurate information, if you will. Yeah, it's tough. It is. And I think question everything, right? I mean, well, I say that. Yes, yes. I don't want us all to incessantly question everything, but I think, you know, there's a lot of information out there that perhaps is not legit. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, the unlearning will, continue and is a lifelong adventure um yes it yes. requires of you curiosity open-mindedness and questioning um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and just in this conversation I've um, learned a couple of things right mm-hmm, it, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily that I was taught the opposite of it but I hadn't questioned it or I'd made an assumption about it and then I learned some new information and now I'm integrating that right so I've unlearned right. maybe my my assumption right. yeah right exactly exactly Hell yeah. Hell no. 
All right. So I'm pretty sure that we have a hell yeah and a hell nah for this week. We do. Should we dive in? Uh, look, maybe we should continue our conversation that we had previously about <laughs> Governor Spencer Cox. Do, do we remember the story where we talked about Spencer Cox and, and how he vetoed um, a bill that was going to exclude trans uh, trans kids or trans athletes? I believe that's it. Um, during one of our previous podcasts. Well, look, Republican Governor Spencer Cox has also now made a statement encouraging students to wear their Native American regalia. And I'm super hype about this, y'all, because let me just say, we see all kinds of stuff depending on the institution, whether it's high schools, whether it's on the college level, et cetera. It is a proud day. And especially for underrepresented folks, systemically excluded folks, you may be that person that literally is either the first person to go to college and complete it successfully, the only person in the family, you carry your entire family's legacy with you. Of course, you would want to represent um, your tribe or your community in your regalia, right? And Lisa, I don't know how it works in the UK or, or anywhere else you may have attended, for me, I got to wear a number of different things. So you got to wear honor cords. You got to wear a sash with your fraternity or sorority on it. Um, maybe you got to decorate the top of your cap with your um, with whatever field you were in, like nursing or something like that. Um, a young woman that I worked with before her, unfortunately, her father passed a few months before she graduated. So she had a picture of him and saying, Dad, I did it. There's lots of things that you can do to celebrate your community. The fact that Native American regalia was specifically, systemically excluded is sickening. I'm talking about sickening. That's ridiculous. And so I'm really appreciative of anyone um, who wants to speak to this, but especially Governor Spencer Cox, who is um, making it clear that families and communities should embrace this opportunity to celebrate their students' accomplishment. And so go Spencer Cox. Um, this is number two. This is the second time that we have, uh, yeah. have applauded you and something that you've done. So thank you for honoring Native American students, families, communities, specific tribes. Um, and we hope that other people um, notice what's been done and follow suit as well. So good job, Governor Cox. We're with you on that. Yeah. All right. Well, so moving on to the hell no, we actually generated quite a, <clears throat> excuse me, quite a long list. Um, so I, as uh, always, yeah, I'm actually going to tie two of these together to make one. Mm -hmm. um, so they're about COVID. And as well, uh, listeners might know that recently a federal judge um, struck down the transportation mask mandate um, and obviously that is now winging its way back through the courts because I think the Biden administration and the CDC are appealing. But one of the things that I think is important for us to note, regardless of how you feel about whether or not the mask requirement on transportation is an infringement of your personal rights, that there are many, many people who are immunocompromised, have chronic illness, or perhaps are uh, parents or guardians or family members of young children who have yet to be vaccinated. And so being celebratory about the fact that you don't have to wear your mask on a plane or on a train is actually at the same time um, erasing or dismissing the concerns of people who still feel very much at risk. And I think that this 
touches a little bit on what we just talked about related to unlearning is that we just, many of us move through the world if we do not have a chronic illness, we do not have any kind of immunocompromise compromising issue. Um, I was, didn't quite know how to finish that mm-hmm. word. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, young children is that we are just thinking of ourselves and how great it is that we don't have to um, wear a mask, but it's important that we think about other people. And so there was a woman who was on a plane, I guess, when the mask mandate got lifted and the pilot said they could take off their masks and the flight attendants walked down the aisle with bags and everyone was cheering. And she's sitting there with either one or two kids that were like two or three years old, um, who I think at two, you can't mask. Like, it's not a good idea. That's right. That's Um, right. And so she's sitting there like, freaking out right because everyone's taking off their masks and she has two kids one or two kids that cannot be protected um so I just think that's really useful in like under unlearning our ableist ways of thinking right how we assume everyone has the same response to something related to healthcare, and then connect so connected to that is there was a study that I came across that essentially found that when white people learn that COVID disproportionately affects people of color, so more people of color get sick or have died from it, they end up having less empathy for COVID prevention measures, such as masking, right? So the knowledge that it harms um, communities of color more than it harms white communities didn't increase their empathy, it Mm. decreased their empathy. And I was a little Mm -hmm. skeptical of it. So I read the article and yes, it's one study, but the number of people in the study was like 1500 or something. So it was a decent amount of Mm. folks, Um, you know? And so I think that should give us pause um, because in both cases, right? We have um, a lack of empathy for folks who might be more deeply harmed by the removal of masks and um mm-hmm. i think we need to check ourselves white people people who don't have chronic illness a little bit more um and kind of unlearn some things there um and yeah. relearn some empathy it seems like yeah absolutely absolutely and you know i think that's that's the key there is that you know i so appreciate just to tie back to the beginning of the the podcast in regards to Lady Gaga receiving this award from the King Center. You know, the King Center uses those awards to to refer back to what Dr. King talked about as far as the beloved community. It doesn't sound too beloved to me if you just throw literally throwing masks to the wind and um, not being considerate 100% of the time of people around you. Um, I feel safe without wearing a mask. However, I have small children, I have uh, elderly grandparents, parents that I care about and would want people to think similarly around them. Um, And so given that it sucks uh, that we're not always the beloved community uh, that we say we want to be. And um, to my my son, Kendrick said, um, maybe Dr. King should come back and give his speech again, because I don't think we're doing what he told us to do. And I I could not say it better. Um, I think we just need to be a bit more considerate as we think about Everyone who still is affected because it ain't over, y'all. It's not over. Raise your hand if you believe we need more women at our triathlons. The team at Lifetime is right there with you. Their main focus, the iconic Verizon New York City Triathlon coming up on July 24th. 
And Lisa, I did this race in 2016. And I have to say, it was like being shot out of a cannon with a thousand of your closest friends at the start of the swim. But I hear, unlike 2016, this year, they added a duathlon distance and implemented a rookie refund program, all to get more racers like you of every age, skill level, and background to race the greatest city in the world. So let's ride a better future for endurance sports together. Visit nyctry.com today and reserve your spot. That's nyctri.com today. Feisty Triathlon is proudly partnered with TryHard. TryHard is the only company offering pre and post swim solutions to provide comprehensive protection for your hair and skin. Its products include swimmer shampoo, pre and post swim conditioner, pre and post swim lotion, and more. All products are made with clean formula and are parabens free, SLS free, alcohol free, cruelty free, vegan, and non GMO. And to boot, bottles are made with 80% recycled plastic. So why don't you swim without compromising your skin and hair? Unfazed listeners get 15% off all TryHard products by going to tryhard.co and using the code FEISTY15. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.